Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are, are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for for you. I just finished a episode called Water for All Regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Two live episodes in a row, everybody. Um, and by the way, we're not going to stop doing um, the the regular episodes. I think that uh, that they're an opportunity to get a little more in depth of the information, and then the live ones are a little looser and, and uh, a little a little more casual and fun. And um, you guys get to ask questions live, and and so I think it's a, a it's a good balance. Um, I, I don't know. This is doing these live episodes is a tremendous uh, undertaking. It re- <laughs> It really um, escalates the amount of work uh, that I'm having to do, and um, I am uh, exceptionally busy. Um, but but it's so much fun. So it uh, it's easier to work on something when you're passionate about it. And these live ones are awesome. This this one this this uh, second one of the year, you'll already hear it. The audio is so much better. And remember that these were recorded. You can watch them on. YouTube got some cameras in there, and and this one looks better than last week's. You can go to the herewearepodcast.com website, and those YouTube videos will be up on there. And um, also, I'm so excited! I've been getting great feedback from you guys about the Laughable app. I I was I was so worried and cautious about, about uh, you know taking this on, and and you know I don't want to like be selling out or or cheapening my product in any way and um and but but this is i have no idea if i'm going to make money off of it i have stock in the company is all that i have um and and uh i just thought it was everything that i was dreaming of putting together for um for locating other podcasts that people have been a guest on and and um finding you guys to put together more live shows as i've explained and so far the feedback from you guys has been absolutely wonderful and they're doing all sorts of cool stuff to um like really soon uh i, I forget what it is i think in, hopefully in the next couple of weeks or three weeks 
they're going to make it so you also have a profile page. So say you follow me or or um, or you go in the app and you follow me or, or Bert Kreisch or Ari Shafir or whoever. But, um, people that you like hearing as guests on podcasts and it's a subscription to them. So then rather than, so you're subscribed to the Here We Are podcast, say you, that pops up in your feed so you know when a new one is out each week, hopefully each week. And um, But m- most other products, you can't see when I'm a guest on other podcasts. So they're going to have a subscription for, uh, you can subscribe to Shane Moss and then anytime I'm a guest on any comedy podcast, it will pop right up in your feed and you can uh, hear a lot more from me. A lot of times people like hearing me um, talk about my uh, science ideas uh, as a guest on on other podcasts um, and because I'm, I'm usually a, a little um, looser with my uh, wild speculations um, when I'm a guest on other podcasts. And so some people get a kick out of that. And um, so laughable is just a way to make all of this uh, easier for you. And I think that's really exciting. I'm excited to be working with them. So thanks so much for all the wonderful feedback. And by the way, they've been so great that some of you have written me on Twitter and mentioned um, the Laughable app and the tweet when tweeting about it. And the Laughable CEO himself will um, uh, will tweet you back and take your feedback and get suggestions. Like, obviously, they're uh, working on getting it t- toward Android. It's just on iPhone phones right now. But um, anyway, just lots of exciting stuff. I really hope you like uh, today's episode want to do lots lots more of these live ones in the future so um please keep sharing and um you know writing reviews if you haven't and that sort of thing and i will talk to you guys on the other side are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are I started, uh, I started uh, connecting with scientists to learn more about my interests. I have no background in science whatsoever. I never went to college. It's just stuff that I happen to be interested in. And so I started this podcast. And you guys are the fourth live one that we've ever done. So thank you for coming out. And thank you for the flat, uh, to the Flat 12 Beer Works in Indy. Um, best beer I've ever had. Tonight we're going to be talking about uh, the aging mind and um, basically what happens as the mind ages and various things that can go wrong, things that can go right, how you can improve the health of your brain. And we're going to have some fun. A quick survey, who in here is aging? 
<laughs> a few of you. Okay, a couple of you. All right, this is going to be super, super relevant to you. Then. You're going to get a lot of great information. Uh, joining me today, I have a couple of uh, neuroscientists at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Nipun Chopra and Shane B. Miller are joining me. How about a big hand? Um, so this is a this is a double Shane show. So this is a real treat for everybody, but especially me, Nipun, You're okay as well. But I'm I'm more excited. I'm I'm more excited that there's two Shanes here, but three would be way too much. So, um, so to start out. Uh, Nipun, and by the way, Shane, I might I might just refer to you as the various names that I've been called throughout, <laughs> throughout the years just to feel what that feels like. That's on the other side of things. Is that okay with you, Shane? Yeah? I will take it run Shane on that. Nipun, can you tell uh, everyone a little bit about you, what you do? Sure. So my research, uh, <clears throat> I just finished my PhD. Well, Waterline finished my PhD, right, Shane? Uh, and my research has looked at a novel way of modulating uh, proteins in Alzheimer's disease. Um, it's taken a long time, about seven years, and uh, I'm here, and I'm on your podcast. So I think this is the highlight of my graduate student experience. <laughs> <laughs> this is, um, th- these are two of the youngest guests I've ever had on the show because I was researching how the brain ages, and then I was realizing how we need young people. <laughs> You don't know about grad school if you think we haven't fought apart the inside. Uh, Shane, what's your research? Uh, so I work on uh, genetic mouse models of Alzheimer's disease. So we take a lot of um, a lot of the genetic risk factors that are identified in populations, um, you know, the sick populations, and we see uh, really what they do in terms of the different different sides of the disease. Do they do they help disease? Do they hurt disease? When we take them out of the equation, uh, and that's that's mostly what we focus on. So different pathways of you know, how does inflammation affect um, some of these different neurodegenerative diseases, including Alzheimer's, uh, and we do a lot of traumatic brain injury research. So first off, um, pretty easy question. Why, why, why does the brain age? I mean, why, why can't we just be immortal? Go. That's an easy question. Can you talk just a little bit about... Um, and, just a, a few of the things that start deteriorating in the mind and, and why, uh, I, I mean, why when you're an adult, you grow and you have all, of, uh, it seems like you hit this prime, and then after a while, does anyone in here know anyone that's old? <laughs> yeah, a few, a few of you. Seems, seems like they slow down a little bit. Um, uh, what, what are some of the uh, things that drive that? And that is, uh, you have 30 minutes to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> Might not be enough. <laughs> um, I'll take a stab at it. So, <clears throat> the brain is a weird organ. It's the weirdest and coolest of organs. Obviously, I have a bit of a bias, but I think it's pretty cool. Now, what happens in aging is... is we continue to um, get older, some of the stuff that was 
that was happening in your brain in terms of your neurons communicating with each other, that starts to slow down because of specific molecular processes. So one of the things that tends to change is how excitable your neurons are. So because because excitability, because neurons communicate each other like electrical synapses. So if one neuron along the thread is messed up, it can have a, a cascade effect. And therefore, when you have specific neurons dying, it actually uh, slows things down in your brain. And that, that's, a, that's a start to the brain aging answer, I think. Yeah, and so uh, there's also a, a fairly large body of literature looking at uh, just so inflammation. So you might think of inflammation as what might cause heart disease or you get a splinter in your body, might make an immune reaction, right? And you have inflammation, you have fever, you get some localized redness. Um, we look at a lot of uh, inflammation in the brain and how does that affect normal aging. Uh, it's been shown about when you hit about 30, 35 years old, every year that you're alive, your brain starts to shrink. So at this point in your life, your brain is the biggest, that, you know, if you're around the sort of mid-30s, your brain is as large as it will ever be and you know, sort of kissing goodbye starting today. Um, but there's inflammation that starts to kind of kick in, um, whether that's, you know, inflammation is sort of a kind of a double-edged sword. So there are really good things that inflammation does, like clearing out um, bad proteins and things like that, bad things in your brain that you might normally want to get rid of. So you think about, we eat food and we get rid of sort of all the waste products, everything that we don't really need. Um, our brain is a little bit similar to that in that we don't necessarily need at all times everything that's in it. Um, and one of the things that slows down as we age is this sort of normal brain clearance, this normal clearing of, of um, proteins that might be worn out and might be sort of non-functional now. Um, and there's, there's sort of positive aspects to inflammation, but there's also negative. So if you have any sort of uh, neurodegenerative diseases, like Alzheimer's disease, inflammation in some ways can actually make the disease worse. So there's normal, normal inflammation through aging. Um, there's a loss of kind of replacement of new nerve or new brain cells. So you may have heard before that uh, once you're born, your, your brain cells just stop growing, which is sort of a controversial issue within the field. Uh, I think we're, we're kind of on the precipice of really understanding how these new nerve cells are born. Uh, but all the data so far suggests that as you get older, the new neurons that are born kind of slow down. So you don't replace as many of these, these bad neurons as you get older. Um, and so that, you know, combined with the inflammation with Know, whether you're genetically predisposed to getting sort of different diseases uh, kind of all adds up to sort of a cumulative effect. So kind of all those sort of, you know, minuscule things taken together, it just compounds and eventually uh, kind of sways, sways disease potentially as a whole. Okay, Buzzkill. Um, <laughs> so so some, some of this uh, uh, neurons dying isn't inherently a bad thing. I mean, when you're, or, or, or atrophying, when you're, when you're young, when you're a baby, there, there's, this is an inherent process of the brain growth, right? You have this kind of synaptic pruning um, that, that's kind of trimming away at, at some of the neurons that aren't being used enough to, um, uh, to help kind of categorize our perceptions so we can separate things like what is the sound information that's coming in, and what is the color information, and what is the shape information? Am I bullshitting? Okay, so far. That was that was worked well done. So, 
So if if this is a natural part of the brain growth in general, um, how much of the when you say that neurons can't be, uh, I didn't, you didn't say can't be. When when you say that it's harder for um, uh, for the, this new neural genesis as you age um, and create new brain cells, there's also isn't there always naturally just kind of fluctuating um, restructuring and rewiring in the brain as well? So just just a slight, this is like a pedantic distinction, but synaptic pruning doesn't usually involve like neurons being killed off. It's more like you have the neuron and where it's, it, it's, it has too many, you know, it's shaking hands with too many people. Synaptic pruning is making sure that it's only shaking hands with the people it's supposed to shake hands with. So it's not killing off the neuron. So, in other words, when when uh, cells when, when you're born with neurons, they, neurons don't really divide after that point. So there's specific there are a couple of different regions, and that's what Shane was getting at in terms of the uh, controversy. Um, there are a couple of different brain regions where neurons can still come out of uh, still divide out of neuroprogenitors. But in general, you have those neurons, and after that point, it's really just making sure they're doing exactly what they're supposed to doing be doing, and that's what synaptic pruning is. So when you get older, when you look at a neuro, if you if you look at the, uh, so basically neurons are communicating by these handshakes, right? If you look at the hand of a neuron from someone who is who is older and someone who is younger, you'll actually see very there are actual differences in what that hand looks like. So it's a lot more uh, there are a lot lot fewer processes within that basically those synaptic branches fewer fewer. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Neuronal connections? Uh, the technical term. Connections? They really need <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the really yeah, so technical term. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Please, <laughs> give me the technical term. This is a science as well. So, yeah, in general, they just they look different. They look different and they act different. And that's why they behave differently in younger adults versus older adults because they're physically different. So the neurons themselves are almost becoming like more discriminating as as they're getting older in a way. They're they're able to communicate less with each other. So uh, their their ability to tell the next neuron to fire can often reduce, mm. functionally making them less relevant. Really. So if you think about the connections that the uh, that these so-called synapses make. Uh, they reduce over time, and if you think of the, the memories that you form as being sort of related to the number of these functional connections in your brain, as you're forming new memories, you make these new connections to different areas of your brain, and you kind of form these into longer-term memories. As you get older, there's more of a, and again, I keep mentioning this inflammation, this clearly what we're, what we're big on in, uh, in our lab, but you know, as you get older, this more inflammatory environment sort of chews up more of these connections. So maybe in um, you know, what uh, what Shane number one was talking about is uh, the synaptic pruning, this kind of normal uh, event that happens as you're aging, uh, and really as you're developing. So you're you're you have immune cells within your brain that are constantly kind of reaching out, um, taking sort of surveying the environment, um, and they. As you're developing, they kind of know which connections are unnecessary, and they trim those out. They say, okay, you don't need to shake hands, as Nakun was saying, with this many partners. So you need to really focus on being friends with these three guys. That's so promiscuous. Yeah, these guys are cool. So hang on to that. 
Stop, you tell your neurons to stop being on Tinder. Exactly. So get off, stop, stop swiping, you swipe right. I don't know. I'm I'm married to three kids, I don't swipe. uh, But basically, when you get older, these these, uh, immune cells that are in your brain, they stop discriminating between what's really good connections and what's bad connections. And as things become more inflammatory, again, this inflammation in the brain, uh, these immune cells start to chew up these connections that maybe shouldn't be chewed up. And so ultimately, this will end up leading to the inability to form new memories. And so some of the things that we see within Alzheimer's disease is really uh, kind of a lack of connectivity within the brain. Yeah, so what is, uh, I mean, uh, you just started explaining it. What, what is Alzheimer's? When, uh, Specifically, like how how do you guys define Alzheimer's? That's a fantastic question, actually. And unfortunately, we only have an hour and a half. But how we clinically define Alzheimer's disease? So, really, the, and again, Captain Buskill, shade number two over here with uh, with Alzheimer's does, disease. Does anyone we, in here know uh, have, have a family or whatever with uh, Alzheimer's? Yeah, a, a few of you. And I'll, what about Parkinson's? I, I have some Parkinson's in my family. No. Man, you guys. I, I, you see, most of my fans are immortal. Uh, <laughs> I draw pretty good people. Uh, uh, so, sorry, I cut you off. So, Alzheimer's. Uh, yeah, so Alzheimer's, how do, how do we define it? Um, that's, so, Alzheimer's presents itself like you know, 10 different diseases. We one of the most difficult things within the field is identifying what is Alzheimer's disease, what is the frontotemporal dementia, what is this flavor of dementia, what is this flavor of dementia, vascular dementia, for instance. All of these are sort of different beasts that end up with the same inability to remember things. And in terms of the classical definition of Alzheimer's disease, so you have a, in your brain, outside of the neurons, you have um, this kind of extracellular environment. And in Alzheimer's disease, you have really two major components. So there is an extracellular component. So you get this this really toxic protein that starts to clump up, sticks to itself, and it deposits in kind of weird places within the brain. Um, And there's also a a protein that kind of sticks to itself inside cells and um, inside of the neurons, specifically, in Alzheimer's disease. Um, And we think that the the proteins that stick to one another kind of inside those cells are what's really, really uh, kind of progressing the clinical symptoms of the disease. So two main aspects, there's kind of the outside of the cell protein deposit that ends up in your brain, and there's an intercellular or inside of the cell deposit. Um, and both of those are sort of kind of the yin-yang of Alzheimer's disease. Depending on who you talk to within the field, they will stand up and fist fight like Korean parliament in front of you and you say, this is what causes, this is what causes. Um, so it's a very fluid definition of what exactly it is. And really the only way that we know how to diagnose Alzheimer's disease is post-mortem. So after the patient has died, uh, we can take the sections of their brain and we can actually see, are there these amyloid plaques outside the cells? And are there these tau tangles inside the cells? And really that's the only way we have right now. So. In terms of the field, we're limited not only on how do we diagnose this disease, but also what is the disease? What's causing it? We've been asking sort of chicken and egg questions for the past 100 years now, and you know, trying to figure out what interplay each of these different components has, uh, along with the inflammation that follows. So as each of these different sides of that pathology goes kind of haywire, 
there's this massive inflammatory event. Sometimes it's good, and in some aspects it's bad. So, first off, at least Koreans have a parliamentary system. Uh, uh, so, let's just take these. Um, and, and uh, so, so, when you talk about uh, South this, this kind of... Right, right. Sorry. That's an enormous distinction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so when you talk about this uh, this kind of inability um, to to shake hands, there uh, it seems like there's a yep. lot of there's a lot of things where it seems like people in their in their youth are able to uh, just be more creative in general. You give them various tests, like hey, name as many things as you can <laughs> do with uh, this pen and cap, and little kids can think of like 30 different things, and an adult can think of like, well, you can write with it, I guess maybe you could like scratch your ear or something like that, and little kids can think of 40 different ideas that I can't even give examples of right now because I'm not as creative as a little kid. And, um, and, and so, so part of this is, is kind of about learning what the most important things are, uh, but it also isn't Part of this about um, about uh, some some of the limitations that that we give ourselves when we get a little too um, uh, uh, set in our ways about about the various things that are important to know, and it, it's it's not a, a million different people take up new hobbies when they're as as seniors and. And start doing art or change careers and do all of these uh, various things. Is there a difference between um, a noticeable difference between people that kind of continue to make these new connections, possibly, and kind of force more of these handshakes, and the people that kind of get stuck in in the day to day of of just repeating the same thing over and over again? Great question. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it's a great question because. So I, I also want to say that be, because we haven't talked about um, how the brain ages on the podcast before, um, the, not only are we setting up some fundamental things, but we're also opening up some real big cans of worms. And a lot of times on the podcast, I have I have some kind of we've already set up some fundamentals, and then we get into some bigger episodes with some other guests later on. And these guys are in a pickle of having to explain a whole lot of really, really big ideas that we haven't explored before. Go. <laughs> and it's sort of a preface, the scientific, let me think about this for a second, aka how the fuck do I answer this question, is that's a really good question. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's usually, anytime hey, I thought it was a really good question. No, it was a crap question. I just wanted more time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a good question because it doesn't have an answer uh, in the sense that yes it's, it's possible that functionally there's something different so uh, let me expand on that for a second there's an area of research now that's looking at what's so, so there, there are adults who are 95, 96 who are completely functionally intact and then you have people who are 60, 65 who have very, fairly advanced Alzheimer's disease <laughs> so why is that? It's possible that 
those individuals who are 90, 95, 96, 100 years old, perfectly motoring along, have some protective factors in their DNA or, or something has happened to them in their life they've, that they've lived a certain way, eaten certain food, whatever hypothesis you come up with, which makes... Cheerios. It's Cheerios, Cheerios. yeah. I, I did read that. It was a, it was a well-cited article. <laughs> Cheerios does sponsor the podcast. That should probably come forward in that. Uh, so there's a, there's a preponderance of, of funding now, actually, and people looking at this, what's different in their genes, what's different, what have they eaten, what have they done, and there are some hypotheses. Some people believe like a Mediterranean diet, for example, is protective for the brain, which I don't not convinced yet, but it's some good research. So there's stuff that people believe is better in your brain of someone who is not doesn't have Alzheimer's disease than someone who does. So that's kind of answering your question. But what do they think of the matter? What do they think it is about the Mediterranean diet? Um, so there are some again some hypotheses, but so. Garlic, for example, is a, it's an anti-inflammatory. So coming back to the, this guy and his millions of dollars of funding on inflammation, uh, so garlic, uh, an extract from garlic, or curcumin, which is in curry, these things are believed to be neuroprotective. And they're neuroprotective in, like, in dishes, like when you throw them onto cells, like I do, and you know, cells behave better, they have more processes. But does that mean something in the brain? It's not... In an intact human brain, it's more difficult to ascertain. Um, so that's why I'm skeptical. I mean, I think on principle it works. I just don't know if it works in the human body. <laughs> Sean, I mean Shane. That was sent to you. Just drinking that in. So I, uh, I've never got to do that before. Sean me. Uh, Sean you so hard, dude. You gotta be ashamed of that shit, man. Hashtag Sean shit. Sean's are the worst. They really are. There's a big civil war going on right now between the Sean's and the Shane's. So, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, again, you can always say there's a huge body of literature that supports the idea that you know, of course, the more you force these brain or the brain to make these connections, I think the more it's kind of a numbers game if you think of it that way, right? I'm I'm kind of big on this whole brain activity. You keep the brain moving, keep it functional, keep it healthy. I, I personally experienced my so my wife's grandmother, um, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease maybe fifteen years ago. And the last few years she just she completely just fell apart. And it's sort of a you know, you always look back retrospectively and you say, okay, was it the timing of the disease? Is that what made her get really bad really fast? Or um, I guess what I'm getting at is at this, at this particular time, she went to assisted living and she went to a nursing home. Now, she survived years with Alzheimer's disease, but not really progressing into it. Every day, smoking cigarettes like a chimney, reading her smut books. You know, she's a little, little old Italian woman. I love her smut books. That was, I don't know why you're slandering your poor. I don't mind the slanders. She won. There's nothing wrong with it. So she has a, you know, that's sort of the front of the mind act. Sure, absolutely. Before Fifty Shades, that may have done right to her immediately. But it was like after she stopped really focusing in on all this stuff that she loved to do, crossword puzzles. So, you know, uh, that's a big thing she loved to do. She did crossword puzzles every day. She read her 
provocative novels. Uh, and she smoked cigarettes, and when they took that away from her, took it away, she went to her assisted living, she had a lot less of that, but as soon as that was taken away from her, it was like, you know, just a nosedive. So I think there's a huge component that the more that we can kind of exercise our mind, we can make more of these connections, train our mind to, to keep memories. I know, again, perfect example for even a, a youthful sort of person, uh, when I went back for my uh, my undergrad education, I hadn't been in school for yeah, maybe five, six years. Uh, I went back and I could not remember two sentences that I read. And I'm like, it's like, I can't believe that I've gone this far downhill. And I think it's a perfect example that, you know, with a year, I trained myself to remember things. I trained myself to, to think about this. And I think if you kind of project that across sort of an aging scenario, it's it's really the same thing. You're, you're training your mental muscles, as it were, to work. You're forming these new connections, and the more connections you have, despite this aging, despite this inflammation, the more you have to begin with, the better you are sort of down the road. So anything that you can do to help keep your mind active is, is always going to be sort of beneficial. Because even in things that go dormant, like, say, blindness, where, if say, the brain, say, whatever ridiculous number they try to use, 60% of the brain is, is used for for um, uh, visual processing. Um, I imagine that's horribly inaccurate. Um, <laughs> I buy it. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I, I think it's pretty spot on. Now that you, <laughs> now that you got it, sorry. <laughs> well, like, We're not correcting you. Yeah. Pretty, sure it's, pretty sure it's 60%. <laughs> um, I, I, you can see, in, in people that go blind, all of a sudden this incredible amount of rewiring that happens in these areas that used to be used, and especially in in various head injuries and the myriad of other things that can go wrong with the brain when they happen in children, the ability to do all of this rewiring. And, and um, it, is that something, it, not just like from a medical or like a medication point of view, um, are, are there various like kind of physical rehabs? Like you, you talk about um, your, is your grandmother right? Yes. Um, uh, I just cried a little bit when I said that. <laughs> um, my, my grandfather got Parkinson's, it's the same sort of thing. You know, he, he loved puzzles and was still throughout it keeping pretty active, and then just as he was less able or less willing to stay active and started watching a little more TV, having a little more kind of getting in more passive information, it started deterring. Um, do you think that uh, uh, just focusing a little more on, on staying active in some of these kind of physical rehab, there's this great documentary uh, called Mirwin Call, I, I uh, encourage all of you. To, uh, this dude had a head injury and had complete amnesia, and then he, they, as part of his rehab, uh, they gave him all sorts of different art projects, and then he started painting these these um, uh, miniatures, and then he made like little scenes about his life, trying to remember his life and stuff, and he, he couldn't remember anything. But all of these capabilities started coming back to him, whereas a lot of times when people suffer uh, physical injury or whatever, you just kind of give up for a long time and it gets worse. My grandmother was uh, this 
dry 92-year-old who, if she was here, uh, when she was 92, she'd be drinking with us until one in the morning and having like really active conversations, walks around and reading re reading lots of smut books. <laughs> and then uh, and then she broke her hip. And then I mean that's a very old age to be anyway, but within six months it was like assisted living and, and then just like kept on uh, going downhill so fast. So but what what kind of one, what kind of treatments are being done on that end, and then from your side of things, uh, where whereas you're kind of playing around a little more with the neurochemistry, um, what what are some of the different options, and then what kind of balance is there? Because uh, what's frustrating is is you do a science podcast, and all you're here here again and again is just like stay active and keep learning, and you know, it's like okay. You know, sometimes I don't want to. Uh, <laughs> and, and so just to kind of stress some of the importance of that and what specific things people people can do and then what what is being done is from the medical standpoint of things, from the pharmaceutical standpoint. So there's this big concept of... Uh, first off, hold on a second. Uh, sound check. What, what, is everything... Okay, just just a little bit of a cutout here and there. Your mic's check, check, check. Smart books. <laughs> I lost the last set. Smart books. Um, sorry, I. I'll say that again. Oh, okay. Okay, but everyone else's levels are good. Yeah. 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 All right. Brilliant. All right. So there's a concept called building brain reserve, which essentially is what you're describing. Like you have to keep your brain active. And, and the, the important thing is that your brain has to be has to be challenged. So it can't just be reading smart books. It has to be re, you know, playing chess or doing Sudoku or crossword, as you had said. Like things that challenge your brain that involve the entirety of your brain as opposed to certain specific regions. Uh, learning a new musical instrument playing a sport, like all these things that we almost always consider just to be physical things, like physical activity, are also engaging your brain in a, in a large extent. So uh, that, is, that is the best thing we have right now, I think. I think that's largely agreed upon by the scientific, uh, there's a scientific consensus that, that, that building brain reserves, staying active, is good for you in terms of aging, and probably good for you in terms of Alzheimer's disease. Now. Uh, it's, I just thought of a new Netflix, uh, a new slogan. It's Netflix and die. <laughs> <laughs> and I just got sued. And I have a Netflix special, and I want another one. Damn it! I make some bad decisions sometimes. <laughs> Thank God for editing. <laughs> no, I'm not editing that. It's funny. So that's the physical side of things. Yeah. Uh, so then on the sort of more pharmaceutical side of things, we again we're really trying to figure out what is the best approach to treat the disease. Is it um, you know we think that this huge inflammatory component can we knock down inflammation to a certain level where it's still healthy? Because again, as I mentioned, certain amounts of inflammation are good in the brain. Um, and there's also a, a huge surge right now of antibody 
treatments for Alzheimer's disease and those types of things that um, it's there been it's been a really mixed bag of results. Um, so again, if you take the two big things that I told you about Alzheimer's, so we've got the, the plaques, the senile plaques that you hear about that kind of form outside of the cells. Um, there are antibodies that kind of stick to these things and act like a flag and say, eat me, for lack of a better word, I suppose, but to, to tell the immune cells in your brain to go kind of gobble up that protein, right? It's, it's, yeah, this, this has really gone downhill in a hurry. Well, no, I mean, I, I, would, I would call it brain pooping, so that would have been much worse. I think that's um, very, that's perfect, though, right? It's, 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 it's kind of clear in the brain poops, right? So, these, these kind of like that your eyes lit off, you're like, brain pooping. He got it. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, you know, we've got a couple different sorts of therapeutic antibodies. So again, these kind of um, act as sort of a flag sticking to these these bad proteins that kind of make the cells in your brain want to clean them up better. Um, there there are a couple different clinical trials, and even uh, Eli Lilly uh, locally in Indianapolis just had a trial that unfortunately had uh, it was not met with the greatest success. So it's sort of back to square one. Um, but a lot of it is, you know, were you just talking shit about that dude for no reason? It's a company. No. It's a company. No, and they fund me for the love of God. I thought you were just pointing out that some dude. No, no, no. It's a company. shooting down one of those two hypotheses. The one, uh, it's not completely right in some ways. So it's it's scary in a way, I'd say, because I still think that in spite of the controversy, most people do believe in that one hypothesis. And a lot of these drug trials are suggesting that maybe at least by itself that one hypothesis is not true. And uh, so in my opinion, and I think other people agree with me, it's time to come up with some new ideas in the field of Alzheimer's disease treatments. Um, you're afraid to say which one is the one they think, because you're afraid that somebody's going to yell at you. <laughs> My boss. Um, so the two hypotheses, as you, as you mentioned, was the amyloid hypothesis and the tau hypothesis. Both of those, just proteins, uh, well, actually that's not true, uh, one of them is a protein, the other one is a portion of a protein, and they're just sticky, and they fuck cells up. That's all they do when they're sticky. And that's it. And the whole point was, uh, did you have a question? Yeah, I did. So, kind of off this topic, but on the topic a little bit, since Shane's little bit area of expertise is psychedelics. Oh, thanks. I, uh, <laughs> oh, you were actually talking to me. I, I, I thought you were talking to him. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a very great area still to this point. I still don't know which one she was talking about. Okay, so both of you. So if when you take them, they light up more areas of your brain, have they tried psychedelics on Alzheimer's patients to see if it has an effect? Oh, I, I, I was going to sneak that in in like a half hour or so once I tricked them into thinking I, Okay, I, I, I retract. No, 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 I'm kidding, I'm kidding. 
Um, no, no, no. That's a wonderful question, and and that's exactly the, where I was eventually uh, going to lead into with talking about forming a lot of these new connections when when you do um, uh, to cut to the chase, but you can see an MRI of someone on LSD or something where all of these novel c connections are seemingly being lit up, whether it's, uh, uh, I mean, temporarily and just for a few hours. Is that a potential, you talk about people microdosing right now, people in Silicon Valley tend to microdose and seem to report higher levels of creativity, but in creativity is just making novel connections. Is that potentially something that could be looked at to um, to fend off some of some of these um, uh, some of the entropying of the various connections that are being made? <laughs> oh, give it to the guy with the tattoo. <laughs> I believe I just got put into a box. <laughs> I'm not sure I like it. So anyhow, yeah, no, uh, yeah, I think um, that. You know, those, the LSD studies, that they were absolutely fascinating. I, um, it certainly caught my eye. And, uh, you know, I think the biggest problem is, and of course, with, with everything else, we have this, this kind of lack of enthusiasm to explore these avenues. So I think that, unfortunately, the, my, my professional self says, we need to do more research. We need to figure out, in all of these different models, is it helpful? Does it actually help? Okay, that's the scientist me. The person me says, Hell yeah, I think it's yeah, I think there's absolutely hope in it, right? I mean this the MRI study was amazing to me. I think that looking at even again, even as, as sort of a transient change, this ability to open up all of these different areas of the brain in that context, uh, it was it was sort of eye-opening to say, okay, well, maybe we need to explore a little bit more into some of these effects from some of these different molecules. But just to play devil's advocate for a second. Sorry guys. Uh, Boo. I know. <laughs> uh, That's not why they paid. <laughs> it is worth. It's worth. I think the question that wasn't answered in that paper, even the discussion section, is: Is it a good thing to have all those brain regions active at the same time, all the time? I don't think that that's true. I don't think that it is good. I agree with you. I no. Sorry. No, I agree with that. So, like, it, I think that's. It's an interesting thing to think about it. I mean, like you said, even if it's for a short term, you know, how amazing would it be for someone's grandmother to be remember stuff or come back to her, uh, to have her personality again, all that stuff for even two hours. It's, a, it's an amazing thing to think about. But we don't, I think it's too early to even contemplate that without knowing what it means. Well, if you look at something like anhedonia, which is yeah. just this, you're completely giving up. You can't get joy from anything. In the entire world, you, you you can't feel any kind of motivation. There's just complete pointlessness in the world, which is going to limit physical activity, and you're not going to take care of yourself in any other regard as well. And if you look at something like that, and then if you look at sometimes if there is enough for sometimes it could have the complete opposite effect, uh, which I think would be the importance of doing these sorts of things in a very clinical setting. But if you look at, but I'll, I'll just give you a very anecdotal, because I get to do that, um, <laughs> example. Uh, if you take it something like looking at scenery, and um, I remember when I was a kid, like 
someone had point out a sunset or like, hey, look at the scenery or something like that to me, and I, I'd be like, well, what? Who cares? It's like I've seen trees before. And then I started doing psychedelics, and I just saw them a little differently and gained more of an appreciation for them. In my thinking, I think that could potentially kind of reactivate and re-inspire and kind of help with... I mean, I think a lot of this stuff is really tied to um, learned helplessness in a way where, where people do just kind of give up and, and something that can... Sure, it doesn't need to be psychedelics. It could be, it could be, uh, it could be traveling to um, a completely different country or something like that, and all of a sudden you see a different way in which the world can work, and that can be really inspiring. I think that trying to inspire uh, some of some of the people that are a little set in their ways, or are deteriorating, or are um, feeling anhedonia or depression, which is one of the main contributing factors for most of these uh, diseases. Is that, that's right. Isn't it? Depression is one of the... There's comorbidity with depression. But I don't know if it's before or... So, uh, the point is, is one, to be able to... I mean, I know there's all sorts of restrictions, but potentially, if you were able, able to test this on, say, animals, and then say, maybe someone who is so far gone that they are basically uh, like uh, they, they can't even remember who they are and they're basically a, a zombie to me it feels just like well what is, what is the harm in, in trying I'm, I'm sure that Aldopa would have never been uh, would have never been experimented on these people if, if they would have been like well what's What's uh, the, this Oliver Sacks guy would have gone like? Well, what's the risk of, of of trying out something on someone that's a zombie anyway, and there's nothing to lose? So I would argue that uh, I think the, where the field is really going is not necessarily when they're so far gone, but before that is where we need right, to right. And I think what you're getting into is if we can harness the power of the psychedelics even through microdosing, where we're figuring out how do these areas of the brain connect with one another? How can we open up that connection to influence more connection potentially, even without the psychedelic effect of these things? What is it about that that opens up those channels for those specific regions of brain to talk to one another? If we can figure that out medicinally, can we open that up in specific regions? The hippocampus, for instance, where a lot of this new memory is formed. Can we focus a certain pharmaceutical molecule to specifically act there to open up these channels to not say, we need to flood the entire brain with this euphoric, amazing feeling, right? right. We need to, that's where the scientist in me comes in and says, okay, well, what is it about those compounds right. that really right. opens up those gates, so to speak? Okay, what is it that makes those connections just completely flood when that happens? And if we can understand, I guess, specific effects in specific areas of the brain, I think that's really where the power is. And then to think about, you know, beforehand, okay, if these people are starting to get sick, now is the time to kind of treat that. Can we make these new connections ahead of time to prevent them from going downhill. Because when it's to the point of they're so clinically sick and so far gone, it's you can't just regrow half the brain back. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to get you guys uh, stuck in the tricky position of just talking about drugs all night, so thank you for doing that for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, but something like uh, um, uh, microphone for this guy. Um, so, something um, Actually, why don't you just go ahead? Like, so you're talking about like how early could you go back and, and go 
back to the handshake thing. Like, what if, like, what if you didn't reduce the number of handshakes? Is that necessarily a good thing that a brain does? Like, you know, I'm the father of a six-year-old boy, and I, like, I swear there was a time when I was looking into his eyes, and I felt like I was looking into an intelligence and kind of comprehend. And then that kind of changed. You know, like there was like a four-year-old shift or something that, like, he doesn't really remember stuff from a while back. It's like, like from your perspective, do you see that there's any advantage to not losing those neural handshakes? And maybe if we could maintain them from that point and not lose them, and then does that cross over anyway into what you were talking about last night in terms of the, like, are we just trying to get back to where we were when we were three? No. Yeah, I know what you're saying. And, yeah, I, I guess that's, uh, that, that, that's one of the things that's is so tricky is there's so many pros and cons to being a three-year-old, to being, like, in your prime, whatever, uh, 30s, in, in your 30s, and then... And then there's these amazing. But by the way, this isn't. This doesn't have to be this big depressing conversation. Aging is like not the end of the world. Most elderly people actually report being happier in their lives than most young people do. Um, and in fact, if you could talk, uh, if you know, and if you could talk a little bit about um, why that is and, and what happens. Uh, no, I'm not putting it on. I don't know why, but that, that is true. Well, at that point, you, your kids have left, right? <laughs> <laughs> I did not expect that answer. <laughs> oh, your kids left. Of course you're happier. That is a variable. I don't think so. It's absolutely true. <laughs> By the way, I, sh- I should answer the first part of your question, which was uh, what would happen if you just, uh, uh, if you eliminated synaptic pruning, is it really what you would It seems like running, like if I run, then I'm like, I, I'm, I stop losing oh, weight, right? Uh, <laughs> start, start, say that over again. Okay. Like, I, I connected to exercise, right? So like, and and I, sorry for saying no earlier, I was just thinking about myself being a three-year-old and having my diaper changed as I brought back some horrifying memories. And so, uh, but anyway, interesting like, comments. I compare this to running, and I don't know if this is like, I get immediate gains from yeah. running at the beginning, but then I like I feel like laziness seeps in, and I can run seven miles, and I, there's no way I'm burning the same amount of calories I was earlier. It's like our bodies are looking for a shortcut; they're looking for the the way to like, get from here to here and use this story to take a shortcut and jump over the cliff. Yeah, you know, like is that necessarily the right way to go? Maybe we should go the long path. Maybe we should, you know, like, we're looking for ways to expend as little energy as possible. Yeah. but maybe that's not. Like the best, like and and so we're going around with you know, we're right off gym memberships, but we really need more firewood, you know, for winter. Right. Do you mind if I rephrase that a little bit in my own way? Um, um, and and by the way, if anyone else, if, if you get that microphone, just hold it like really close to your mouth, just so because uh, uh, they don't only turn off so much. Um, but um, I, because I think about this very thing all the time, I just think about it in a little bit of a different way. So you have the synaptic pruning stuff when you're younger, which makes all sorts of sense when you just have just this overwhelming myriad of information just plowing through every one of your sensory organs, and it's overwhelming, and of course babies are crying all the time and freaking out. Why wouldn't it be scary? And then you kind of start to figure out something, okay, I do... I do this behavior and I get this and you get this reward and then you start doing this pruning stuff to kind of 
uh, uh, stop shaking so many hands with the things that you don't need to shake hands with, and this simplifies our perception of the world, but then as we age, and as we become an adult, as, as say, if, if you're uh, uh, someone in their 30s who now kind of, not that you have everything figured out, but I mean, you haven't figured out enough where it's like, I, I get fucking bored, uh, or stress. I could take a little more simulation and take a little uh, like different perspective, but the brain's just not really wired to do this and form these new connections very easily unless you kind of consciously go, okay, I've accepted this new job or I'm going back to school or I'm going to read this, this different book that is outside of what I normally do. Um, or yoga, or whatever, whatever different thing that creates these new pathways. Is that kind of along the yeah. So I think what you're talking about, Shane, is more to do with reward pathways. Uh, I think what you're saying is, over time, you just learn to extract pleasure and things from from things that you enjoy, and you enjoying anything is just futile misinformation. But a dopamine release in your blood, in your brain, and that kicks your reward pathway so you learn when I do this I get this when I do this it's good when I do this it's bad and that's basically that's your life right that's our lives that's why we when we're 10 I decided to play soccer because I enjoyed it it gave me a dopamine bump when I got to 22 it was neuroscience right and when I'm 40 smart by the way, you have a you have a soccer podcast, throw out a quick plug. Oh, nobody should listen to it. it's it's called ULF Podcast. It's a small it's not a what's it called? ULF Podcast. Yeah. That's for smart board podcast. I'm just gonna go with that one. Okay. Anyway, so you know, it's it's like a it's like a you, you've trained yourself to get a dopamine bump from different things. That's just that's you learning. That's your habit. That's what you enjoy. That's how you get through life. I, I think the synaptic pruning thing is slightly different. So like when when you're when you're younger, when when you're a kid, when you're five year old, six year old, you, you said right. Around that time, the synaptic pruning is more to make sure that things are developing normally. So when there's aberrant, when there's poor synaptic pruning, that's one of the underlying reasons we believe for autism. So there's not enough synaptic pruning in specific brain regions leading to autism-like behavior. So in other words, synaptic pruning, while it, while it sounds kind of crazy, because you're like, you know, in principle what you're saying is absolutely right. You would want more handshakes, you would want more stuff, but that is a normal process. Sorry. So I have two nephews that are autistic, right? So my genetic pair is my sister, right? And so uh, I have the son who seems to be doing just fine. Yeah. And then my sister has two autistic boys. Um, but lately, given all the things I'm thinking about in terms of psychedelic research, being around the autistic boys, they're always now. They don't need to meditate. There's no purpose for it. Like, they don't think about a minute ago. They don't think about in front of They're right now. And they will change from socking me in the face because they don't like what they want to hugging me. And then there's, boom, just like that. It's like they are in a meditative state all the time. And why don't we desire that? Is that what we're looking for? <laughs> you know, like, is that, like, he doesn't seem unhappy with his state. 
me more than anybody else, and the fact that he doesn't have to go through the adult stresses that we're going to have to go through, like, I look at him and I see liberation. Like, yes. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't see the stress, and then, but I see my sister's stress. That's her story. You know, she's, she, she didn't get, she doesn't, she didn't get what she thought she was getting into. You know, she, yeah. she's not going to have that same kind of love. It's a totally different thing. I see Max, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's great. But like, well, right here, right now, meditating 100 percent of the time. I, I think that I think that the, what they're saying is that uh, uh, perhaps is that uh, not to put words in your mouth, but but that um, autism is is sometimes there's a fundamental misunderstanding about or 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 has been in research for some time about what it's about and, and thinking it's like some limitation or some inability to have social skills or something and, and kind of what they're saying with synaptic pruning is is. In fact, what is it is is it's overwhelming. There's too many connections, and they they're they're having to block out some of the um, stimulation coming in, and which would unfortunately just make you concentrate on the here and now. And 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 as as nice as some of that stuff sounds, I mean, we do need to think about the future and how we behave, and then learn from our past. And our, it's not it, we do. But today, I mean, like, like, do we? <laughs> I'm not trying to yeah. like, like, it's a great question. It seems like a lovely state to be in. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I feel like I'm trying to get to where he's at, and he's just there. I mean, in, in premise, you could argue, premise, that if we took away the idea that someone who has autism spectrum, who's on the autism spectrum, is uh, has a, some inability to have social inter- interactions. We took that away. They're, they are normal. Uh, I hate using that word, but they, you couldn't tell a difference, right, between someone who's autistic or not. So if you if you have an increasing mass of people who have auto who have autism spectrum disorder, that becomes more and more common, right? So what what you're saying, which is a really interesting thing that I hadn't thought about until now, is if that is the norm. You know, if there are enough people who are on the autism spectrum, that becomes the norm, then this way of thinking would actually be less prevalent. And yeah, therefore, yeah. it becomes stress. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's an amazing thought. I, I thought about. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, yeah, it, it's a, it's a, I, at least we'd be better at math. So. <laughs> yeah. So, I think stepping back, I think what our our brains are so smart, they're entirely more intelligent than they'll ever be, right? And so they have this ability to do things that we can't understand. And so by virtue, potentially, of these extra connections that we might have in certain areas, they may limit connections in other areas. And so I think it's a balance. I think it's a really, it's an important, very careful biological balance that our brains are fantastic at achieving. And I think that okay, that's a great example. When you skew it one way or another, you have these these very different results. So, in uh, with regards to, to synaptic pruning, you know, is it is it our end goal to have as many synaptic connections as we possibly can? I don't know that that's the case. I think it's a, a matter of properly regulating the connections to route them to where they sort of should be, right? Maybe where they to op, to to make our bodies and our our systems operate at their highest capacity. I think. And so, if you think about maybe. Um, there's this whole topic of brain plasticity, okay? And I think um, Shane talked about this before. So if you're blind, you start reforming these different connections all throughout the brain. And 
have the this incredible ability to to form these connections in different areas, and your brain kind of compensates in different ways. And so I think that uh, when we, we talk about autism spectrums, we you know we we really don't understand what autism is right. at all at this point. You know, from it, it, we call it a spectrum because it presents itself in so many different ways. And so, are there areas in the brain that may benefit from more of these connections? Absolutely. I think I think that's that's for sure. But there are also, again, to bring us clear back to the beginning of the conversation with this kind of psychedelic research, is it good to have all of those channels open at the same time? And I would argue, you know, probably not. Um, I, I I mean, there's also like huge quotes around the word how the brain should be. Yeah, um, I, I cringed when I said should. Yeah, yeah. Um, does available assume open like connections to the brain? Like, if you have them available, are they always open? Or if you have them available and you don't disconnect their ability to be there, can you open and close them? Like, are you assuming in their brain function? Like, are we losing the ability by shutting it off at a very early age? And because our bodies realize, like, oh, we don't need all these things, and we shut off the availability for them, then they're never open. But can we retain availability and regulate openness? So I think the, the first answer is no, not all connections are always open. And I think that's where all this whole, you know, making sure proper connections go to proper places. So there are so many different types of neurons, whether they're excitatory, so they transmit a signal to my fingers to make them move when I want them to move, or whether they are inhibitory. So these are the neurons that degenerate with Parkinson's disease. So there has to be this, this fundamental balance of give and take between neurons. So if you don't have the proper connections, you're giving too much or you're taking too much, then it kind of throws off the overall balance for the whole brain. So there's there's not, unfortunately, an easy answer to that, but it's kind of the best I have. Yeah, I, I mean, there's there's also um, there's also things like some sometimes um, it, it's about balance in the brain. Some, sometimes you can artificially uh, limit parts of the brain, and that actually increases blood flow to other parts of the brain that can. But what, what's that? Uh, What's that like electromagnetic thing where they can like put a pulse on someone's head and then all of a sudden they're like great at doing yes. art? Uh, TMS. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Are you talking about the magnetic one? Yeah, you just go and then someone can draw like a horse perfectly. Oh, I, I think that's science fiction. I'm just not remembering quite what it is. But, but, but the idea is that sometimes limiting yeah. blood flow to some parts of the brain can increase it to the others. And so, like, since we're talking about psychedelic, uh, the, the, the reason why MDMA is good for PTSD is because it limits blood flow to the amygdala, which is their big kind of emotional, heavy loading, uh, or, uh, 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 like, it, in charge of a lot of your fight or flight kind of response stuff. And so it limits that so these people that aren't otherwise able to kind of express themselves about this various thing because they're too scared, because they're freaking out about it, it limits that so that they can talk about it, but then it also increases blood flow at the same time for the prefrontal cortex, which is doing a lot of your kind of decision-making and higher executive functions, and so you're able to process some of these things in perhaps a smarter way than you are uh, normally, although, although it's temporary. But, um, but, at the, but at the same time, 
uh, when we talk about the way something should be, isn't a lot of the reason why some, uh, uh, or, or part of the reason why we have some of these, um, some of these deficits in old age, uh, like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and things like cancer, uh, which I mean, children, children have cancer and, and different things too, but not at anywhere near the same rates. Isn't part of it is just because evolution never got a chance to weed any of those genes out because we've already reproduced and and they're kind of done with us after that point and and so we've already passed on whatever genes so those genes can become active later on in life and evolution hasn't had a chance to weed it out because you've already passed those genes on yeah i think that's i think that's um, as Prevalent, or as I mean, that, that's one of those things that are on the borderline of being pop science and real, like you know, science science. And I think it's accurate. I genuinely believe that, that there's so much truth to that. My well, science is popular. So. <laughs> 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 well, just you know, there's that famous saying that you only use ten percent of your brain, which is just garbage, right? That was like definite, just garbage. Pop yeah. science because of, I think it's because of that movie with uh, uh, what was it? Your yeah, it's Howard. Right? Jeff Goldblum. You said in power. Oh, Jeff. Okay, I'll, I'll forgive Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let that one slide. Yeah, the 10% brain thing has been around and yeah. So, but, but I think what you're saying is, is right. We're, we're not. We weren't designed. I'm gonna take that one. I'm gonna take that word back. Uh, <laughs> no, no. Just stick with that. We weren't designed. <laughs> I don't think biologically we were meant to be living to, you know, as long as we were living to. And, and some of the things we're seeing are, we, we know it molecularly, we know it at cellular level, etc. Things are going wrong over time. As our cells divide, more and more mistakes are made in DNA replication. That, you know, it's, it's, you, you can tell that things are going wrong. So there are DNA repair enzymes that stop working as well as you get older. So that's a bummer. The number of mutations, the number of cells keep dividing. Every time a cell divides, there's some mutation rate. The number of mutations aggregate over time. There's a thing called epigenetics, which is basically stuff that's not affecting your DNA sequence, but affecting the expression of DNA. That changes over time. Um, that's just, epigenetics is so fascinating. Why don't you just explain that a little clearer? So for the longest time we always thought about genes, not those ones. Uh, this is like a teacher joke, right? That all every teacher, all of us have made this joke at some point about genes. Nah, I don't make that joke. Thanks for me up, bro. <laughs> uh, so your genes drive what you become. So you have, you know. Billions of nucleotides of genes that, that make the protein that makes you likely to have that gorgeous beard and me having awful beard when I grow one. So things like that, we always believed that it was that simple, one to one. End of the story. Genes you're born with, that's what you have. Exactly. That's what we thought. But we realized along the way that this thing called epigenetics, which means that things that happen to you, your phenotype, your, your, your behavior, your, the way you look, everything can also have another additional layer of regulation. And that is, there are certain, certain things, uh, you can have certain printing, it's called 
methylation, uh, all these things. You can add certain tags onto DNA, which makes it looser or tighter. And looser or tighter is important only in the sense that it makes a specific part of DNA likely to be expressed or not likely to be expressed. So the DNA, uh, let me summarize, the DNA code does not change epigenetics. What's changing is specific regions that were not being expressed earlier are now suddenly being expressed. And that's epigenetics. And that and there's a strong link to the environment. So in other words, you smoke, there's a gene epigenetic imprint on your DNA. You, you every every puff you take is every it's just you it, it, it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, it, it's a signal from the environment that's kind of pinging on on this gene over and over again. And if it happens enough times or at a, a reliable enough rate or at a strong enough that all of a sudden this this gene can flip on or off, essentially. So like if you have a, a genetic risk factor for disease, it, you might make too little of a protein. Or you, let's, say, let's say, for instance, you make too much of a protein, and that influences a disease. So you make just a little bit too much of one specific gene, and it makes you more likely to get disease. So you go out and light a cigarette. Every time you smoke, it makes that this, this epigenetic regulation around that gene kind of relax. So there, it's more likely that that bad protein might be expressed. We don't know specifically what affects what parts of the DNA, but if you loosen up the wrong part of the DNA, everything can go haywire. So all of a sudden you've got all of these crazy ass inflammatory molecules that you normally wouldn't have <laughs> there. That's great from a rash song, by the way. <laughs> crazy ass inflammatory molecules. That, uh, that is... Yeah, absolutely. That was, yeah, that was Kanye. <laughs> right. Kanye. Yeah, that's, that's what I meant to say. That's how much I try to ignore the Kardashians. I didn't even say that in his name. Um, all right, sorry. I, that was just a... Yeah. I get distracted. Need one more of those. <laughs> you should sit right back on course. Perfect time. So, I mean, just to finish on that epigenetic genetic point, it, uh, the general idea is that we've gone away from the idea that Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, cancer, all this stuff is only your gene. I mean, in some cases, you know, it's pretty straightforward, like in breast cancer with BRCA gene, you, you know that it's not 100% certainty, but you have a high certainty of developing breast cancer. But most of the other stuff, you can say with some certainty that epigenetics plays a small part in ranging from a small to a very significant part in the disease. In other words, the way we understand biology right now is that your environment is having an impact on you, and the way it is having an impact on you is via epigenetics. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. So the healthy diet, the keeping your mind active, the drinking beer to activate the proper inflammatory responses in your brain, right? The proper synaptic pruning. So that is all. Yeah, I'm killing it, right? <laughs> that's all, that, that's all, that all plays a part. So the, the DNA blueprint we're born with is not the end of the story. It's everything else. Garbage in, garbage out sort of thing. So we can talk all day long about putting the right food in your body getting enough exercise, but all of that really is impacting the way that our genetic information is wrapped up on itself. So is it 
looser in some areas and tighter in some areas. That's what epigenetics is. How are these genes regulated? And how is it regulated as an effect of what you're eating, how much you sleep, how much your kids make you want to jump out the window, that sort of thing. So all of that is it's kind of involved. Um, so since you since you do bring up alcohol and uh, and, and we're talking about flexibility, um, since I'm uh, drinking alcohol right now and I come up with all of these new different ideas, like maybe I should run naked down the street or something, and this is like a, this is a new experience that I haven't had before. So this is probably like a great thing that I'm doing for my brain, right? For Alzheimer's, I was actually hoping you were going to correct me. <laughs> no, it was you, you explaining to me how, how it, alcohol it seems, or at least alcoholism does seem to have have uh, quite a negative effect on on uh, how quickly the brain deteriorates and and the likelihood of some of these problems. Yeah, so um, alcohol is sort of a depressant. I was hoping you were just going to go, yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, I'm, just, I'm just trying to pull things out of the air. Now. So, uh, so it's sort of a depressant, right? We talk about memory formation as an ability, again, going back to the very beginning of the conversation, we're forming new synapses. We're making these, these brain cells excited, but excited we mean they're active. That sort of thing, right? So the more alcohol we put in ourselves has sort of a detrimental effect because it might be limiting the amount of activity in our brain temporarily. So again, everything with moderation. Like my grandma always used to, the one that didn't read smut books, used to, because she did. The other one did moderation. moderation. My God, no. So the one that moderated, she, you know, she said everything in moderation, right? And it's true for everything, right? Too much alcohol, too much depressing of the of sort of the the signals in the brain, it's not good. Oh, well, now I'm curious. Does, it, does that mean that someone that has a moderate amount of alcohol, like, and is a moderate drinker, has some beers here and there, is going to be better off than someone that's never had a drop of alcohol? Absolutely, maybe. <laughs> really? So, no, that's the exclamation thing, right? There's a balance. <laughs> no, this is now sponsored by Budweiser. This is now. <laughs> I forget whatever company we were sponsoring before. But this is a lot of skin. But no, it's a, that's, that's sort of this influencing positive inflammation, right? So it's a balance of having too much inflammation or sort of just enough inflammation. And alcohol absolutely contributes to inflammation. There's some research that suggests that drinking a glass of wine, just like one glass of wine a night, is actually good for your heart, and by extension, good for a certain specific hypothesis of the Alzheimer's disease. Of Alzheimer's disease. So yeah, I mean, moderate alcohol is one of the things that uh, that would be recommended for. Uh, I'm very scared to say this. Moderate alcohol is okay. Let's go with that. Well, what if I have ten glasses of wine once every ten days? <laughs> I'm just being sick. Um, and make sure it's turned on there. Yeah. Uh, so I was wondering, um, there is a an idea behind uh, that if you were to uh, maybe 
fall behind in your studies or your reading or anything, like for you in particular, no, no, um, your friends probably wouldn't want to uh, interact with you as much because there wouldn't be any interesting dialogue between the two of you, right? Same thing with you, Shane. And same thing with you, Shane number one. <laughs> like, if you quit doing comedy for like five years, you probably wouldn't be talking to your comedy friends as often. So you keep yourself sharp by staying on point with what your studies are or what it is you're doing professionally. And so um, I've found that that is something that keeps, keeps me polished. You know, if I'm reading a book, if I'm reading information, if I'm staying constantly informed, um, it's, it's better for my mind. And um, uh, by the same point, uh, I wonder if you guys have an opinion, if there's something genetically where you think um, maybe your guys' parents had uh, high IQs. Maybe, maybe, maybe you had, maybe you came from a, a good genetic background, and I wonder at, at a certain point if um, you quit polishing the violin, you quit playing it, you know, you quit, you quit practicing. You know what I mean? I mean, not only do you become less interesting in your own personal life and what you are trying to do. Um, it. You know what I mean? You, you yeah. What yeah. Well, I, I do, and then I also, I, it makes me think of something else, which is, uh, one, please don't make me talk about which one of my relatives have high IQs and which ones don't. <laughs> um, but, but two, um, I, I, I often wonder when, when something um, like, say, so I have this podcast that's this interesting science is information, and you come out and maybe some of it's a little dry and not like a laugh a minute and, and whatnot, but you're learning something and it's really interesting. Now, is it just as much a benefit for your brain to be learning something and, and expanding and gaining this knowledge, or is, it, or is it kind of like an equal benefit? And this is maybe a little different than what you're asking. Is it, is it an equal benefit that now you're you're becoming a more interesting person in general. And now when you have, now when you're at a dinner party, you have something else to talk about rather than the weather. And will, will that increase your social affiliations? And if you increase your social affiliations, will you be getting more stimulus? And if you're getting more stimulus, will be, you be getting information? And all, is all of this stuff going to feed into one another? Is that like I know it's not exactly what you're. You, you can correct me if you want. I would never. Uh, <laughs> I, I know that's not exactly what no, you're no, saying. You're it's just something that I thought of while you were. I was thinking uh, as you were listening. I was just like, oh, just because oh, what they, do you they want they to are say? Shame, that's being a real dick. Fucking asshole. No, because they are academics, and I I know what that that feels like. If you were to take a year off school, <laughs> if you were to take a year off school, and you weren't to study things you've been studying, like if you were to be, uh, 
in an intro to philosophy class, sure. and you only have maybe a sailor. Philosophy, <laughs> then it's not going to be interesting anymore. The com- you're not going to have conversations. That, your conversations are about some video game. So um, you have to polish. You have to. You have to keep working toward it. And um, by you know, I don't know, playing the violin. You stay good at playing the violin, but it falls off just as soon as you quit playing it. So I mean, going back to the Alzheimer's thing, um, I mean that's that's something else. But I, I want to know um, if like you think there's something genetically just like predisposed where you you can actually just be born into your parents were brilliant, you're brilliant, you know. Not you in particular, but you know, like, I'm not, I'm not saying. Yeah, fuck you, dude. You know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, my, my parents were fun. My parents are smart people. I got good SAT scores, you know, this and that. You know, it's, is it luck of the draw, or can you? Can you fight that, or are you born into Alzheimer's? Is there is there something? I'm, I'm saying, hold the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Not totally like that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, I just I wonder if there's some um, something you think is like um, if your parents are uh, really intelligent people, yes. are you more likely not to? Don't all of these components have different uh, uh, degrees of genetic and environmental influences? I think that's epigenetics in a nutshell, right? I think that is, again, you may be born with these genes that predispose you to being able to remember things easier, but also the the that you eat, the activity that you have kind of influences how much of that gene is expressed. I think that's all a combination of it. But But to be fair, there are genetic factors that are implicated in Alzheimer's disease. We know four genes in particular that we consider to be risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. Well, actually, one for the common form of Alzheimer's disease, and uh, three, four, that are in, uh, in what is known as the familial Alzheimer's disease, which is the minority of Alzheimer's disease. But I think what you were really asking about was, you know, about if your parents are intelligent, are you likely to be more intelligent and therefore not have Alzheimer's disease? Is that what you were asking? Or be less predisposed. So there is uh, there is evidence that level of education is preventative for Alzheimer's disease. Having said that, that that's not again that's a complete correlation. That is you know it's that you cannot draw causation there at all in my opinion. Well, if you're raised in a professional family, you hear about uh, something like. 70,000 different words a week. If you're raised in a blue-collar family, you hear something like 25,000 words a week. If you're raised in a family um, that is low-income, you hear about 16,000 words a week. Those are ballparks, but it's uh, but the scale of it is accurate, uh, accurate-ish. And, and, and so, so certainly... That, I, I think that's a good example of, of how how your genes, uh, how one's genes are then influencing the environment, and then and then how tricky it is to tease apart 
what is genetic and what is environmental if these people with good genes created this better environment for this thing? Was it their genes that created the high IQ or the environment with all these fancy words? It's an interaction. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's the fucking yin and the yang. Like every like every scientist I talk to, it's just everything in life is the yin and the yang, and everything is very fractal like. And no no one says that because it's Eastern philosophy stuff. I'm not into Eastern philosophy either, but everything is the yin and the yang. Everything sounds like and nothing. Eastern philosophy. Um, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> um, but. But also, I, I was curious is if, when he was saying, like, say, say, rather than talking about flexibility, he was talking about if you just don't stop playing the violin, will will you be? And I mean, he wasn't saying that. I don't. I don't think he meant to say that. But but it is. If you if you don't if you keep on practicing this violin, will you ward off some of the those things? And. Um, it, I would argue that, at least from the building brain reserve side of it, which I was talking about earlier, it has to be novel. You have, you have to challenge your brain. So playing the violin over and over again, from what I understand, would not be beneficial to building right. brain reserve. It would be, again, it's difficult to draw an exact quantitation here, but maybe learning a new song of the violin or playing a new instrument, doing Sudoku, playing chess, like things that are involved new things, right? and, and, and learning a new language is another one. So those, I think, are what are preventative. Maybe not doing the same thing over and over In fact, I would say that doing the same thing over and over again would not help. Did I mention that we are sponsored by Duolingo? Did I mention that? <laughs> um, uh, great learning um, software program. One second. Um, I do want to say regarding that, that, it, uh, that uh, I've heard about some studies where um, where they look at academics and people that are in the top of their field are the ones that are the most susceptible to these kinds of things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's <coughs> specifically because these people don't get their ideas questioned and because they're at at the very inside that you get so good at something you really end up and you stick to it and you go down this wormhole you aren't learning new things because that's what you're known for and getting famous for. And so these people with these exceptionally high IQs are actually having these mental problems faster than some just like blue collar mechanic or whatever that's playing board games and trying to paint and do other things potentially. Um, check, check, John Nash. You got it. Uh, so my question was when it comes to treatment be it uh, food, diet, or pharmaceuticals, what's the importance and challenges of the blood-brain barrier um, and how that's factored into treatment? And then uh, when it comes to epigenetic stresses, per chance, uh, nano-manufacturing nano and things like that could bring more epigenetic stresses that can bother us, body and mind. Could that also be a pathway for treatment through animal medicine or XYZ, but mainly blood brain barrier. Just curious. And, and by the way, uh, let's do like, uh, we're going to do like 10 more minutes at the most. So, uh, so we'll, or like five, but we'll, we'll do like two more questions. Yeah. Okay, so I'll start with the blood brain barrier issue. And that's 
really in terms of designing any kind of pharmaceutical treatments, that is the number one, in my opinion, the number one struggle that we have, right? So number one, you have to have a molecule that can, so for those of you that aren't familiar, the brain is kind of kept in this, this beautiful little fishbowl in your skull, and it's, for the most part, not entirely separated from your, your what we call the periphery, all right? Your arms, your legs, your bloodstream. There are very tight and close regulations to what can go across the blood-brain barrier and what can't. And that's important because, of course, you wouldn't want your brain to get infected with something, right? You get food poisoning, you don't want that spilling over and infecting your entire brain. The brain controls everything else, you're done, right? So in terms of designing medications, that is an incredible challenge because it's like, okay, how, first of all, how the hell do we get this molecule or whatever drug we're trying to get across the blood-brain barrier, number one? And then number two, how do we get it where we want it to go? Okay, so there are so many different cell types in the brain, how do we target specifically which one we want to go to? And so there's a, uh, in our lab especially, uh, is kind of focusing on some of these things, uh, looking at are there potential therapeutic approaches to treating things that aren't necessarily in the brain? Are there things that are circulating your blood, for instance, that can carry things into the brain? So the blood-brain barrier is a, it's a huge hurdle within neuroscience. How do we get past it? Um, and kind of in that vein, it's also one of those things that, uh, that deteriorates with disease. So it, um, it also keeps cells out of your brain that shouldn't be there. So as you have a disease that might uh, eliminate that blood-brain barrier, you're also having all sorts of cells that aren't supposed to be there getting in there and producing chemicals and producing all these different factors that shouldn't be there. So the big, big hurdles we have, first of all, how do we maybe stop the blood-brain barrier from deteriorating because that's not good. We don't want that. And number two, if we have medications, how do we design those from getting across the barrier? So that's, that's really the sort of the trickiness in treating the disease and treating anything within the brain is how do we get something shuttled to this very particular compartment and affect exactly what we want it to do without screwing up everything else in body. And then in terms of the epigenetic approaches, Nagoon, I think, could address that. Dick. Uh, <laughs> I was about to smooth pass off. I was like, almost oh, going to call you out on it. So, so the problem we have with epigenetics the approaches right now is the lack of specificity. So everything we have are designed to have like a massive brush approach of changing epigenetic markers. And as, as Shane was suggesting, you don't want that across the board. So that's the problem right now with epigenetic, uh, dis, uh, sorry, epigenetic therapeutics is the lack of specificity in general. Just talking in general. The second part, the last bit of your question was the nanoparticle bit. Nanoparticles, short, short answer, yes. I mean, that, that's something that is being, that is hot in every field for neuroscience because nanoparticles, tiny particles, they get, some of them get past the blood-brain barrier very easily. Uh, if you can tag what, whatever it is you want to it, that's great. But the problem is, as soon as you tag it to the nanoparticle, you know, it's not as easy to get through. So, but yeah, absolutely, it's, it's, uh, it's something to be looked at. So, uh, I, I mean, this is, this is, such a tricky thing for you guys to figure out when you look at something like, say, THC, that, as far as I know... What's, what's that? Why don't you tell us what that is? It's a compound <laughs> in cannabis and this marijuana flower. What's cannabis? That, um, that, that can inhibit...
inhibit some things in the youth, but um, but it seems as if in seniors can actually seem to ward off some of the effects of Alzheimer's and to figure out what parts of the marijuana are specifically doing that and what parts aren't, and maybe figuring out the parts that are doing it and having and, and maybe detaching them from the parts that are even making someone high so that we can actually be like, this is a, just a fucking medicine. Like, we're not just trying to have a good time. We're trying to help people. And and that that's something that is very difficult to study and figure out exactly what those chemicals are going to be. By the way, I have to say, as soon as you said some THC, I was thinking of that commercial, you know, that they added as a way. He goes, it's going to end up in permanent insanity. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, the old, the old um, right. reefer madness? Reefer madness, that's exactly what I'm talking about. A well-respected young man. <laughs> one hit of the river. <laughs> kills everyone and jumped out a window. Sorry, I didn't mean to bring it back to drugs. I just know that THC. No, I think it's... It, a, in, in, in particular, has had a, an effect on um, in Alzheimer's research. Am I right? Well, not in clinical trials that I know of. Again, so, so you, the thing is that... That you know. <laughs> the thing is that... The problem with Alzheimer's research and neuroscience research in general is you can have all kinds of cool effects on cells sitting in plates, and that's great. You can have a subset of those things will have an effect in an intact rodent model, which, which is what Shane studies. That's also great. You get to humans, and most of it doesn't work. 99%, I think it's a good quantity, <laughs> doesn't work. So. Clinical trial, uh, so in other words, let me go back to what I'm trying to say. It's possible that, you know, activating CD1 receptors, for example, would have a beneficial effect in Alzheimer's disease. But I don't think, again, there isn't enough evidence to convince me yet. I think sort of the regulatory element is finally, we're now at the precipice where people can actually study this and not worry about being in prison for the rest okay, of Okay, first off, I, we were, I also want to say, Nipun, that I have an audio book that I could play for you right now that told me that, so whatever your journals are. Um, so, no, I don't know what I'm talking about, but. No, I mean, it's possible. I, it's not an area of literature that I've studied. Yeah, I think that uh, currently the studies regarding THC, CBD, and those the combinations therein, uh, again, those are so early, and we're finally able to look at those things now, again, without being, you know, for risk of being in prison for the rest of our lives, and actually ask these scientific questions to say, okay, what is it about this plant? And again, to go full circle about, you know, what is it about these these mushrooms? What is it about this blotter paper that's making these these channels activate themselves? Okay, we want to take that and we want to say, okay, is it a combination of the two major chemicals combined that we know of, right? Because that's not the end of the story either, right? We know that there's CBD, we know there's THC. What else is there in there? That's what we want to know. And we want to see exactly, you know, what components of that are beneficial and what aren't. So I think that as we move further into dissecting that work, because at this point, it's sort of all bets are off, right? You can look at the literature and you can you can find studies that, you know, people right now want to be the first out of the gate looking at this thing. They want to say, okay, well, I, you know, I study marijuana, it's completely terrible. You know, it's, it makes inflammation go out of control. 
Or you can say there are studies that say, okay, this moderately increases inflammation to a good level, right? Because again, it's this whole yin yang balance of inflammation again. By the way, in case I uh, didn't mention, we study inflammation <laughs> in the brain. <laughs> but it's right. It's it's that whole thing. So what what exact component of that works? And it's it's not new. We've been doing this for years. It's just because these things are hot topics. It's it's the it's the marijuana. It's you know the LSDs. That's the hot thing. Who gives a shit what it is, right? There are things that are making biological changes that we don't understand. And frankly, that's that's what we know so far. And to I guess take away from that research or to not drive that forward limits what we understand. So currently, I can tell you. We don't really know what's good about it, what's bad about it, because we've been held back so long that we're finally, I think, at the point now, hopefully going forward, that we can continue to do that. We can continue to tease those things out. This is the rainforest plant thing, right? If you go to the rainforest, we find all these new different things. It's the you know, it's the the new designer drugs, it's the Kratoms of the world, right? It's the, the, the newest things that we can say, okay, this has a biological effect. What is it? Why is it happening? What does it do? What specifically is it about that? It's a combination of things, but what what does this, what does this, what does this? And I think once we learn more and more about those individual molecules, we'll have more options and more, more ability to treat with certain things. Thank you for mentioning Kratom. Um, <laughs> so to drive the discussion in a somewhat different direction, touching on what this gentleman said over here with regard to nanotechnology, um, as a software systems engineer, I tend to draw a lot of uh, parallels between um, how a processor or um, software components and hardware all work together and with and just kind of bring that back to how the human body works and the brain as a processor and the memory and the storage and all these other uh, functions. Um, is There are a lot of um, processors that are being worked on and there, there's a lot being borrowed from the brain with regard to how processors are being made and formed and the traces are being configured to operate more efficiently. Um, is there anything that your studies have taken away from the application of better logic, better practices with regard to electromechanical implementation because the brain is just electrical impulses for the most part with chemical and whatever terminology you want to use. Um, is there anything that your studies have taken away from the, the other side of the coin? Because I know computation has taken a lot from the research done by your field. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question because a computer, you, you, you ask it to do something, it's going to do it the same way over and over and over again. We'll retrieve the information over and over. We, we rely on that. If it doesn't, we're fucked now, right? Uh, we rely on computers so much. The brain, not so much. The brain is malleable. Your memories are malleable. I mean, that's what eyewitness testimony is becoming less and less reliable now, right? It changes the color of a car from red to pink or blue or whatever you want. You, memories are malleable. So in some ways, like, I, 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 I think it's a great way to start the conversation about the brain, uh, the similarities between brain hardware and, and computers. But uh, I, I think there are some some inherent differences because I think what you get to work with is something a lot more concrete and a, uh, a lot more 
a lot less subjective as far as uh, memory processing and retrieval. I think that with human beings, it's a, it's definitely not nearly as perfect. We're, we're a lot more flawed. Yeah, I think what uh, maybe a good summary of that is we. I would look at it the opposite way, right? So, what do we take from programming? What do we take from computers? I would look at it as these things have all sort of taken. What does biology do perfectly? You know, I think it, it's it's almost exactly the opposite. And I think we've been struggling with understanding how the body works and how <coughs> organisms work in general. So, take. Um, Energy expenditure. Okay, so you can have the most efficient engine. I wish I knew the. I wish I knew the numbers offhand, but you have the most efficient engine that we have currently. To burn you don't know the numbers. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right, well. I don't even know why I get paid at this point. I, just, I look pretty, but uh, <laughs> but uh, you know we take the most efficient engine, right? So we say that you know in terms of us converting energy into something that our biological system can use. We are amazingly efficient at it. There is no engine that we can produce that can even touch that. We can't get even close to our efficiency in terms of molecule-molecule converting breakdown to energy conservation or to usable energy, right? There's, we just can't do it. And I think that we, the best thing that we have been able to do is model, model things after life. You know, it's the, the, the hummingbird wing flight pattern, right? We're looking at, um, the Department of Defense is looking at how hummingbird wings fly to make sure that, you know, the newest, best, um, you know, fighter jets can just hover, right? They can move all over the place. We can't do that. We're just not able to do, we're not able to think on those higher biological levels. So I think that rather, rather than us looking into what can we learn from programming, what can we learn from computer science, I think it's more, what can computer science learn from biology? What can we take from that and make a more efficient machine? Because we are the ultimate picture of efficiency. Can, can I make a suggestion? When you're editing the podcast, can you just like cut out all my bits and just have his answers? Because your answers are fucking awesome, man. Yeah, we're going to cut you out instead. It's just going to be like, vroom, vroom, memories and malleable memories of this are uh, nice and rosy colored. I think that um, I, I think you know, I've, I've been thinking of this for a long I don't do stand-up to a bunch of people and have people laugh at my jokes, but this doesn't mean that much to me. <laughs> I mean, honestly I'd just rather have people be engaged and, and learn interesting things and then go out in the world and spread these interesting things to other interesting people that are interested and I think that can spread and then I think they can understand the importance of doing this is that we'll all be a bit more mentally healthy I'm not speaking for myself of course but the rest of you guys at least will be and so thank you guys for coming out tonight how about a big hand for Nakun Chopra and Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Got to take a week off um, next week, guys. I, I need a break. I haven't had a break. I'm going to Key West with, uh, with my lady um, for, for a few days for a little Valentine's Day uh, thing. I, I, haven't, 
I don't know the last time I had a vacation. It's been years. Um, but, uh, but anyway, um, so I, after that, I have, uh, I have some episodes lined up in Miami. I'm, I'm doing a, a live podcast in Palm Harbor, Florida, if you know anyone there, and uh, that's outside of Tampa. I'd really, really appreciate the support. I still haven't 100% figured out how to effectively market the show and get people out to the show. So anything you guys can do to help Palm Harbor, Florida, that would be a big one for me. Um, I'm working on, um, I'm finalizing Boulder soon, uh, working on Nashville for the live Here We Are podcast. I have Athens basically in the books, um, Portland and, and Bridgetown. Um, I think I'm going to try to go back to Minneapolis uh, with it soon, maybe do, a, do it regularly there. And um, and there's there's some other ones um, that I'm not thinking of, but but many more soon. And so yeah, keep spreading the word for me. That would be a tremendous help. And remember, you can watch this video on YouTube, and you can also listen on your brand spanking new laughable app. Thank you guys so much for listening. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you're my favorite. And you know if you've come to my show and told me that you're a favorite, you get special high fives and extra hugs. And so uh, who doesn't want that? So I will talk to you guys in two weeks. Um, we, I, I might put a regular one up next. I should be recording some um, regular ones uh, and end a live podcast all in the same week um, after uh, after Valentine's Day, and so yeah, that's that. Um, but I uh, why didn't I stop? <laughs> that that was just my mind just completely uh, went blank. I, I wonder why that happens. I would like to know. Um, I know a little bit. I guess we kind of talked about it a little bit in this episode. But, um, yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. My attention span is ridiculous. I hope to one day find out more about it. Talk to you guys soon. And enjoy your next couple weeks before we get a chance to chat again. Say uh, Seinfeld was on an island yeah. and he was blowing Boris Karloff. What would it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld? I'd love having you 